Well, stand with me as we do rise this morning to hear our sermon text. We're going to take all of Acts chapter 13 in view this morning, but to get us going, let me just read the first 12 verses for our attention, and then I'll pray and, and we'll begin. So listen as God speaks to you now through his perfect and faithful word. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimius, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we are indeed grateful that you speak to us through your word, that all of your promises have come to fulfillment, and so they are yes and amen in your son Jesus Christ. And as we even think about those promises this day, we ask that you would remind us of your everlasting, constant faithfulness to your covenant people that we might be built up in Jesus Christ, that we might hear his word of truth. And we do pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. A Williams College in Massachusetts, I would imagine, has not been a tourist destination for perhaps anyone in the room today. It's a tourist destination for almost nobody in America, but Williams College in Massachusetts ought to be, I suppose, a, a tourist destination of, of many Christians. If you were to go to Williams College and walk around the campus, you would eventually come across a rather large stone monument. And on that monument are inscribed five names which lie underneath the phrase, the field is the world. So here's the story behind the monument. In 1806, a student at Williams College named Samuel Mills, uh, he decided he wanted to begin praying for the cause of what we would now call today global missions, going forth from New England. 
that time in the early 18th century, certainly in the English-speaking churches, there were precious few churches either side of the Atlantic that would have any sort of global missionary endeavor or initiative. Uh, All missions work tended to be local, at most regional. And so Samuel Mills in August of that year said he wanted to grab some friends there at the college and they were going to begin to pray for the cause of Christ advancing to the ends of the earth. And they gathered one afternoon in August and it began to rain and they sought refuge under this haystack. And evidently that meeting, prayer meeting, uh, was so moving that they called for a weekly prayer meeting. They're underneath the haystack to pray for the same thing. And scholars have since called the Haystack Prayer Meeting one of the most pivotal events in what we now call the modern missions movement because it wasn't too long later that for the first time in American history, local missions boards actually grew into foreign missions boards. Strategies and initiatives and endeavors to take Christ to the ends of the earth, they began to pour forth out of New England and it was all in response to a simple prayer meeting. And in Acts 13, at the beginning, we come to another prayer meeting, one that happened, of course, many centuries ago. And it's from this simple prayer meeting that in a way that has totally changed the world, the gospel begins to go forth to the ends of the earth. And students, if you've been paying attention to Acts, you would know that, of course, this is a narrative about the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. It began in chapter 1 with Jesus telling his apostles that they were his witnesses. And they were meant to take the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And up until this point, through chapter 12, uh, what we've seen is that God is forcing uh, the gospel out of Jerusalem primarily through two means. Persecution and unusual providences. It was in chapter 7 that this man named Stephen was martyred, and in chapter 8 opens, and we see that that martyrdom, that persecution, scattered the church from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And as the next few chapters unfold, we, we see unusual providences, we might say, with men like Philip, with this man Saul of Tarsus, with even the apostle Peter as God appears in dreams, or the risen Christ uh, appears on a road to Damascus, to send forth the gospel evermore to the end of the earth. But in Acts chapter 13, we see the more regular way that God sends forth the truth and advances Christ's kingdom here in this world. Because we have countless stories even today that God still uses persecution to advance the gospel. He still uses unusual providences to extend the kingdom. But the regular way he does it, no doubt, is by sending missionaries, and church planters to preach the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's what it happens in Acts chapter 13, that these two men, Barnabas and Saul, who really from this chapter forward is known as Paul, they are going to take the gospel further than it's ever gone in the known world at that time. So kids, if you look down at chapter 13, if your Bible's anything like mine, you see that chapter 13 spans a few pages. It's quite a long chapter, 52 verses long, in fact. And what I want you to see from all the words that are in front of you today is this simple theme. I want to look at this event of Christ's appointment in Antioch. Christ's appointment in Antioch. And we're going to spend most of our time in the third section because we'll first see that these men are sent with the gospel and then secondly, they're safeguarding the gospel. But really from verse 13 through the end of the chapter, you find these men speaking 
the gospel. And we want to give our attention to that as we see this divine appointment finally come to pass. So they're sent with the gospel in verse 1 through 3. You'll notice again we're told in verse 1 of chapter 13 that the church in view here, the local congregation, is the one there at Antioch. Now we're back in Antioch because you might remember from last week if you were here that uh, Saul and Barnabas, they left Jerusalem and they returned to Antioch. If you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard from uh, Pastor Trigstead telling you that Antioch was this city that it was the Roman capital of Syria. It was this kind of connection between the east and west in the Roman Empire. It was the third largest city in the known world at that time. And it's here in this local church in Antioch that verse 1 tells us they have a very deep bench of prophets and teachers. You could even kind of unfold the meaning of those names and the identity of those names to see the diversity that belonged to the early church there at Antioch. This is going to become, in many ways, the the missionary hub for the gospel's advance to the end of the earth. It's why even in the first few centuries of the early church, really outside of the church at Jerusalem, the church at Antioch was the most influential church in the Roman Empire at the time. So they've got these five men listed there in verse 1, a deep bench of talented prophets and, and teachers. I was speaking with an associate pastor in our our presbytery not too long ago about this church that had contacted him. And they had asked him to interview for their senior pastor position. And I was talking with this associate pastor, telling him, you know, he was at this church that had a relatively deep bench of of ministers and pastors that he should consider the senior pastor position because no local church needs to kind of hoard, if you will, all this talent to itself. There's many churches in our denomination that need faithful pastors and, 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 good, and good preachers. And these five men were, were more than what Antioch needed, it seems like. And so while they were worshiping, look what happens in verse 2 and 3. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting and the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. We don't know how the Holy Spirit exactly said that, but nevertheless, it was clear that Barnabas and Saul, the Spirit says, need to be set apart for the work to which I have called them. Then with fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and then sent them off. So here is, is an ordination service that we're looking into here with Barnabas and Saul ordained to missionary ministry. They're meant to go forth with the gospel. But I want you to notice how those two verses emphasize Uh, the humble dependence of this church in their decision-making. Twice, it's telling us, it's through prayer and fasting that the Spirit directed their steps. I wonder what place prayer and fasting have in your decision-making. Don't you think that uh, many Christians today and Christian homes today and even Christian churches today have not much prayer and fasting And what does that reveal about the individual, the home, and the congregation, but perhaps a presumption on their own discernment and wisdom when thinking about the future? Have you ever prayed and fasted when making a decision? Well, they're praying and fasting. They're sending off these two men. And you'll see in verse 4 and 5 where they're sent, Seleucia to Cyprus to Salamis, eventually in verse 6, they get as far as the whole island of Paphos. And it's there that we see these missionaries sent with the gospel go about the work of of safeguarding the gospel. Because the text goes on to introduce us to these these two main figures in this middle section of our passage. 
You've got this false prophet, this magician named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation. Now, that name's going to be very ironic for what's getting ready to happen. And then you've got this other man named Sergius Paulus. He's a proconsul, governor, leader, uh, government authority in the land. And the text tells us not only, you'll see verse 7, that he was a man of intelligence, but he, Sergius Paulus, he sought to hear God's word. And this magician, also named Elmas, you'll see in verse 8, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, there was a book that was published 85 years ago in America that became a surprising success. It actually is one of the most sold books ever written in the English language. I pulled it up on Amazon's bestseller list, and this book published in 1936 is still number 52 today, this week, in Amazon's bestseller list. It was a book written by Dale Carnegie, and some of you might know its title, have perhaps read its title, How to Win Friends and Influence People. What we see here in Acts 13 is this man, you'll see in verse 9, now called Paul. For his Roman name takes dominance as he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He evidently hadn't read the first century equivalent of how to win friends and influence people. You've got Bar-Jesus opposing the gospel and with no quick courage or no small amount of quick courage. You see what he says in verse 10 and 11. You son of the devil. The son of salvation is actually a son of Satan. Paul says, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. He erupts, doesn't he, with righteous indignation, judgment even, because this man was opposing the gospel. And that, that sign of, of blindness is little more, isn't it, than this, this type even of the kind of judgment that belongs to any person that ultimately and finally opposes Jesus Christ. Of what does it mean to be judged eternally, but to fall under the demise of darkness, away from the light of the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of Jesus Christ? I wonder if it's a terrifying type that's meant to wake some of you up this morning. And if you're a Christian, have you ever had this kind of righteous indignation at someone opposing the gospel? You might understand why I would say many Christians often think they have righteous indignation when they don't. But so often their righteous anger is directed to God's people, to God's church. And the kind of righteous indignation that marks Paul here is that that opposes the true preaching of Jesus Christ. And there are times, aren't there, when not only is it possible to be righteously indignant, but it's also utterly necessary for salvation to be righteously indignant. Because you see, this sign of judgment that fell upon the magician, it actually becomes the sign that God uses to convert Sergius Paulus. You see verse 12. The proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And I hope many of you know what it means to be astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When was the last time you were astonished at the teaching of the Lord? 
For some of you in the room today, you might say, well, it's been a few days. Others of you might say, it's been, well, it's been a few weeks, but it's happened this calendar year. Do you know that some of you might need to say, it's been years since I was astonished at the Lord's teaching. And others of you need to say, I've never truly been astonished at the Lord's teaching. These missionaries, what are they doing there? They're sent with the gospel. They're safeguarding the gospel, but the bulk of our text is now in this final section. They're speaking the gospel. I have this friend that lives on the other side of the Atlantic, and he pastors, or at least ministered in a church that in his country, it's a very famous congregation. It has this storied history of God's power and salvation working itself out in very profound and wonderful ways in the life of his congregation. I was over there visiting him once, and he told me that sometimes what he'll do is he'll just kind of walk around the building, and he'll lean his head against the wall, and with this kind of prayer, he says, you know, tell me your secrets. Now, what did it sound like when the gospel poured forth with power in this place? And if you've ever wanted to know the secret of Paul's sermons, if you ever want to know what it sounded like when the gospel poured forth from Paul with power, well, you get it here in chapter 13. It's the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul in this text. And you'll see the occasion of his preaching in verse 13 through 15. He comes to the synagogue as was his normal pattern. He's in Pisidia, I'm sorry, Antioch in Pisidia. And there comes uh, the weekly Sabbath service. Now, if you walked into a weekly a Sabbath service in a synagogue, it would go something like this. Lots of prayers and lots of readings. Uh, there would have been a recitation of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. There would have been a, a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets. There would have been an expositional sermon. There would have been a conclusion to the service with this blessing, with this benediction. And the text tells us that afterwards, uh, the rulers of the synagogue, they looked over at Paul and they looked over at Barnabas. And you'll see what they said. Brothers, verse 15, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, maybe it was because Paul was dressed in some sort of rabbinical garb, and he looked just by way of his attire as an authority in Jewish teaching, which he was. It could just be they were noticeably visitors there at the synagogue. But, but kids, I trust that you know it's a silly thing to put a microphone in front of a preacher and say, do you have anything to say? <laughs> they always have something to say, don't they? And you'll see what Paul Begins with, in verse 16, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Now, if you don't hear anything up until this point in the sermon, this is God's command to you now, listen. Because the rest of this text is the preaching of Jesus Christ and the response to Jesus Christ. It's a, a sermon that uh, we can unfold with three simple words designating what follows. You've got history, identity, and victory. Because what Paul first does, as we've seen the apostles already do in Acts to this point, he begins his sermon by reviewing in this summary fashion, survey fashion, he reviews Israel's history in verse 17 through 25. If you just glance through the text, you'll see he begins with the patriarchs, he moves to the exodus, he moves to the conquest of the promised land, he mentions the first monarch in Israel, this king named Saul, and he mentions the second king in Israel, the king after God's own heart. You'll see verse 23, of this man's offspring, that being David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
He's bringing the story of Israel up to Jesus. Then he mentions, you'll notice in the next few verses, John the Baptist, who of course came uh, preaching the glory of Jesus Christ, saying, so great and glorious is this coming Messiah that I can't even stoop down to untie his sandal strap. But the, the majority of the sermon, verse 26 through 47, moves from this review of Israel's history. It declares, we can say it this way, Jesus' identity, which was proven in his resurrection victory. Now, that's the bulk of Paul's first recorded sermon in Acts. Jesus' identity as proven by his resurrection victory. Because he says, you guys should have noticed in verse 26 and 27 that the prophets spoke of this Messiah to come, but nevertheless, you Jews executed him by putting him on a tree. Yet three days later, up from the grave, he arose, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. I do hope you're noticing in Acts the degree to which it's utterly impossible to preach the gospel without preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, How is it that Jesus' identity as the long-awaited Messiah is confirmed and authenticated, but the fact that he died and three days later rose again? That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, isn't it? That tends for many people in the world today to be a stumbling block that they just can't get over. But it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Christians preach as the gospel the good news that without him coming forth from the grave three days later, without this empty tomb, There's no reason for me to be preaching today. There's no reason for you to believe in him today. There's no reason to expect forgiveness of your sins today. Yet, he says, doesn't he, in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And not only is this good news for our sins, it's good news because it vindicates God's faithfulness to his promise. Because you see what we're told in verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us by their children, to their children by raising Jesus. He says it fulfills the second psalm. He says it fulfills the 16th psalm. And so, no gospel proclamation is complete without personal application. Look at verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So see that pivot in verse 38 with that word, therefore. He's applying it. What is he simply saying? He's simply saying that forgiveness of sins, freedom from sins, the actual word there for freed in the original is justification language. A justification of sinners. It's utterly impossible if Jesus Christ has not come, died, and rose again. Do you need today, and some of you do, freedom from your sin? Uh, do, Do you need to know that one day you can stand before the Lord at the final judgment with confidence knowing that his gavel of judgment will pound his judgment table and say, not guilty, even though your sins deserve his punishment forever? Here the text is telling you how that is possible. If you look to Jesus Christ, who alone can free you from that which the law could not do. But good gospel preaching in the Bible, like verse 38, it's got wooing language, we might say. Good gospel preaching in the Bible, like verse 
40 and 41, it's got warning language. Uh, The Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon, it ends with a profound warning. Notice verse 40. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Fulfillment of Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Some of you today need that wooing language of 38 and 39. That free, full, and final forgiveness of sins that's offered in Jesus Christ alone, yet others of you need that warning language. Unless you drift away from what you have heard and neglect so great a salvation and find that demise of judgment in darkness fall upon you at the last day. But Jesus Christ, he's the consummation of Israel's history. His identity is that of the long-expected Messiah. It's his resurrection victory that guarantees that sin has been dealt with once and for all. What do you do with that speaking of the gospel? Many of you know the name of the late R.C. Sproul. He's a theologian and, and preacher that had such profound influence throughout the world for sound doctrine in the late 20th century and He published something like 100 different books, and I was reading one of those books this week. And in that book, he mentioned another book that he wrote, saying this, One of my books recently went out of print, and if my memory serves me right, it went out of print faster than anything I've written. In terms of the Christian book-selling market, it was a literary disaster, an unqualified bomb. And that book was titled... Getting the gospel right. Many people aren't interested in getting the gospel right. Many people aren't interested in getting the gospel at all. But some people are. And as we begin to close this morning in the remainder of our text, I want to show you how the response to Paul's sermon falls into two simple categories. These are obvious responses. These are predictable responses. But these are responses that represent the only two kinds of responses you could ever have to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And they have eternal significance attached to them, don't they? Because what you'll find in an Acts, when, when someone preaches, it tends to follow this ordinary pattern. There's the revelation of Jesus Christ that calls for a response. And then Luke tell us what, tells us what the reaction was to that response. So revelation calls for a response, leads to the reaction. So as we close, the two reactions. Summary reactions to Jesus Christ. Some, number one, react by rejecting and reviling Jesus Christ. You see in verse 32, this was an effective sermon. People were begging Paul to come back next week and teach again. I've ministered the gospel for a long time. No one's ever begged me to come back next week and teach again. Even when they've said very encouraging things. I'm not sure many pastors ever get that experience. Paul did here. Please, you have to come back next week. So they stayed there. They're in Antioch in Pisidia. Verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 43 saying he, they were urging the people to continue in the grace of God. And they showed up, verse 44, the next Sabbath, and almost the whole city is gathered together there at the synagogue. Now, the synagogue 
is where Jews gathered, not the whole city gathered. The city is taking up the normal expected parking place and your seat that was always saved in the synagogue. And the Jews were not happy about it. In an eternally significant way, verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. If you skip down to verse 50, you'll notice not just rejecting and reviling, they were stirring up persecution against these preachers of the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, people will always reject it and revile it. Some will. And I want you to notice who's doing the rejecting and reviling in this passage. Jews. Who should have known better. It's possible, isn't it, that you can know your Bible really well and not know the Savior Jesus Christ with true faith. That you can have an education in the scriptures. No experience of forgiveness of sins. Be utterly diligent and devoted and disciplined to God's law in such a way everyone notices it. And yet not actually be delivered from your sins. People rejecting and reviling Jesus Christ. Well, positively, isn't it true that some will rejoice in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that Paul is now going to go forth with the gospel to them. But the Jews had rejected it, so you'll notice in the previous verses, verse 46 through 47, he says, I'm going off to the Gentiles, just like Jesus commissioned me to do. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 51 Speaks about these apostles leaving the city, shaking off the dust from their feet. In verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy, with the Holy Spirit. Are you rejecting Jesus Christ? Are you rejoicing in Jesus Christ? You know, earlier this week, I got a notification on my phone, a text message from my dentist saying, we need to confirm your appointment for later this week. I had been scheduled to go in earlier in the summer and uh, demands meant numerous scheduling conflicts, so it kind of kept pushing itself back, and as your dentist might be like mine, they kept pushing for the appointment, and, you know, eventually the appointment uh, came through. And Christ's appointment in Antioch comes through for many people. Do you notice that day? Or told in verse 48, not just that they're rejoicing. Of course they're rejoicing because they were appointed that day to begin rejoicing in Jesus Christ, as Luke tells us, as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Could it be possible that the Savior named Jesus Christ has decreed from eternity past to make an appointment with you today in the same way he did so many centuries ago? Might he be scheduling a time with you today that you might know what it means to rejoice in the eternal life that he alone can provide? Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your sovereign grace that knows no limit, that can never be exhausted, and that is sovereign in its power and its appointment and its timing. Lord, we know you've appointed this day for us to meet Jesus Christ, and we pray that we will respond with faith and repentance. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.